Behold, he comes, riding on the clouds, shining like the sun at the trumpet call. Lift your voice, it's the year of jubilee, and out of Zion's hill salvation comes, O come. These are the days of Ezekiel, dry bones becoming as flesh. These are the days of your servant David, rebuilding a temple of praise. These are the days of the harvest. Oh, the fields are as white in your world, and we are the laborers in your vineyard, declaring the word of the Lord. Behold, he comes, riding on the clouds, shining like the sun at the trumpet call. Lift your voice, it's the year of jubilee, and out of Zion's hill salvation comes. There is no God like Jehovah. I wonder, I wonder what you hope for. Uh, it might be a restful weekend. You've worked hard all week. and You might hope for a time of um, watching the kids play soccer on a Saturday morning, maybe a little football in the afternoon, and then maybe a quiet, easy Sunday. Church with the people you love, and then a good lunch, followed by some rest. I wonder what you hope for. It might be a restful vacation. You've worked hard all year. You've been saving for the trip. And if you're like me, you pack a bunch of books. You leave the phone and the laptop at home. And you head off to that place where the sun is shining. The air is clearer. And there's water nearby. Maybe a pool. A lake if you go far enough north. Or the ocean. I wonder what you hope for. It might be a comfortable retirement. You've worked hard your entire adult life. You've saved and invested your money with the hope that you'll be able to rest and enjoy your grandchildren and, and maybe some, spending some time participating in those hobbies that you've been working to perfect. Maybe your golf game. Maybe a bit of woodworking or gardening or travel or whatever it is that you've enjoyed. But you hope to be able to enjoy those last few years of life before your health starts to decline. I wonder what you hope for. Those are all good gifts from God. They're good gifts of the Lord. A restful weekend, an enjoyable vacation, a comfortable retirement. Praise God from whom all blessings flow, right? The prophets of old regularly wrote of the things that all of God's people were to hope for. Namely, the day when he will come and make all things right. Just listen to Micah chapter 4, verses 1 to 7. The prophet Micah says this, And it shall come to pass in the latter days, that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains, and it shall be lifted up above the hills, and people shall flow to it. And many nations shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between many peoples and shall decide disputes for strong nations far away. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. 
But they shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid, for the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. For all the peoples walk each in the name of its God, but we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. In that day, declares the Lord, I will assemble the lame and gather those who have been driven away and those whom I have afflicted. The lame I will make rem the remnant and those who are cast off a strong nation and the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from this time forth and forevermore. And yet, and yet the preacher of Hebrews tells us that those same people to whom that was written, namely the Old Testament saints, Hebrews says, and all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised. Since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. Well, the year of Jubilee was given as a foretaste of that great day when we, will, when we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. Turn to Leviticus chapter 25. This is a, it's a long chapter, um, and we are going to cover the whole thing, starting in verse 8 where we left off last week, but because it's so long, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read it in parts as we go through it. But let's begin by reading just verses 8 to 12. So Leviticus 25, 8 through 12 says this. The Lord says, You shall count seven weeks of years, seven times seven years, so that the time of the seven weeks of years shall give you 49 years. Then you shall sound the loud trumpet on the tenth day of the seventh month. On the day of atonement you shall sound the trumpet throughout all your land. And you shall consecrate... Uh, the fiftieth year, and proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you, when each of you shall return to his property, and each of you shall return to his clan. That fiftieth year shall be a jubilee for you. In it you shall neither sow nor reap what grows of itself, uh, nor gather the grapes from the undressed vines, for it is a jubilee. It shall be holy to you. You may eat the produce of the field. Let's stop right here and pray one more time. God, it is uh, our prayer today that you would feed us from your word, that you would give us what we need, Lord. Help us to remember that we are here to rest in the finished work of Jesus Christ. We pray these things in his name. Amen. So the year of Jubilee was that once in a lifetime, or maybe by reason of strength, twice in a lifetime, um, event in the liturgical calendar of the people of Israel, when all of them would return to their own land, they would be surrounded by their own families, they would have all of their debts removed and enjoy a year of Sabbath rest. And it was that, it was that one gift when all of the chosen people of God would look forward to, to years of, of safety and prosperity in the land, a land that was flowing with milk and honey. They would live in a soul-satisfying fellowship with their covenant Lord. The Redeemer that they acknowledged was sovereign over the land and, and over the people and, and over all things. In short, the year of Jubilee looks backward to Eden and forward to eternity. And these, 
These opening verses here, or at least the opening verses of this section, verses 8 to 12, they serve as an introduction to the, to the laws that surround this, this 50th year celebration. Um, and the thing that we have to remember is that while, while we view these things through redeemed eyes, right? We view these things through eyes who have, who have beheld the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. So even though, even though we can clearly see God's grace throughout the law, this is still law. So, so I sometimes have referred to, uh, to these things as God's gracious legal requirements. That means that it is, the, it, is the, um, it is the duty of the people of God to obey these things. They are obligated to obey. This is their duty under the terms of the covenant. And so this law, or this section of the law here, it, it, it can be broken into two main categories. There's, there's God's announcement of the Jubilee. That's what we just read, verses 8 to 12. And then the rest of the chapter are Israel's um, moral and legal responsibilities to God's law within this part of the law. So let's begin with God's announcement of the Jubilee in verses 8 to 12 there. God's announcement of Jubilee. In verse 8, there's a curious way of counting years. Read this again, just verse 8. You shall count seven weeks of years, seven times seven years, so that the time of the seven weeks of years shall give you 49 years. Um, so seven sevens, it says. And the word that's translated, the ESV translates as weeks. Some versions actually just use the word Sabbaths. That's probably a better translation of this. Um, especially given the context of, of the Sabbath, and we looked at last week in verses 1 to 7. So in verses 1 to 7, every seven years, they have a Sabbath year. And then every seven Sabbath years, so 49 years, after every 49 years, you have a, a kind of a, a super Sabbath, um, a year of Jubilee. And this super Sabbath, it was designed to provide a sort of an overhaul of all of the distortions of their, of their social and economic lives that the people of Israel had, had brought upon themselves, had, that all that they had dealt with for the past 50 years. So the freedom of the people. Their inherited properties, they would be returned to their rightful conditions. So let me remind you that up in verse 2, the Lord had said this. So up in verse 2, speak to the people of Israel and say to them, when you come into the land that I give you, the land shall keep a Sabbath to the Lord. When you come into the land. So these instructions here were to be carried out once they had conquered the promised land. Uh, now, if you fast forward from here all the way up to the book of Joshua, you're going to read the account of the, of the conquest of the promised land. And in, jo in Joshua chapters 13 through 21, so all of those chapters, um, you can read about the, uh, the, the allotments that each tribe, each clan is, is given. Okay, so we're not going to read it. It's a whole long passage of very difficult to pronounce place names. But for several chapters, they are given very specific coordinates, very specific parts of the promised land for each tribe. And, and that account ends with this. So Joshua 21, after the Lord gives the specific 
places of the promised land to each tribe. He says in, in Joshua 21, 43 to 45, Thus the Lord gave to Israel all the land that he swore to give to their fathers. And they took possession of it, and they settled there. And the Lord gave them rest on every side, just as he had sworn to their fathers. Not one of all their enemies had withstood them, for the Lord had given all their enemies into their hands. Not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. And the idea is that at that right there, at the, when this is, is written, decreed, those verses there, now begins the Sabbath year and the Jubilee year countdown. See, the Lord, the Lord knew that his people would fail, that they would fail to keep even the land that he had given them. Um, they would fail to keep their places, whether that was through debt or some other reason. And so during this super Sabbath, this year of Jubilee, he graciously gave them a, a chance, essentially once per generation, every 50 years, he gave them a chance to start over and to move back to the land that he had given them, the land that he had allotted to them by tribe. Now the purpose of this was not to punish the wealthy or to develop some kind of Marxist socialist view of property, of land ownership. Rather, this reminded, first of all, the wealthy that their wealth had a purpose. It wasn't just simply for them to keep growing in wealth in order to, to enlarge their personal uh, portfolios. It was for the good of the entire covenant community, all of God's people. But this also reminded the poor that the Lord cared for them and that he provided for them with this hope of relief and a fresh start. And then maybe, and I think this might be the most important thing that this does, this reminded all of God's people that this land is God's land. In fact, the land, the land did not belong to the Canaanites or the Hittites or the Jebusites or whoever happened to be living on it at the time. In fact, the land, indeed all of the earth, belongs to God. Psalm 50, verses 10, 11, and 12 says, For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills, and all, all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not have told you, for the world and its fullness are mine, declares the Lord. Now, especially when it comes to the Sabbath, um, the number seven, the number seven has kind of taken on a, a special significance because it's, it's come to represent kind of a, a completeness. Think of, of Genesis chapter 2. Verses 2 and 3, which says, And on the seventh day God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all of his work that he had done. And God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. And so it was fitting that the year of Jubilee was to begin or was to be proclaimed on the Day of Atonement, itself a, a day of Sabbath rest during the seventh month. It's also fitting that it was called on this day, that the, the trumpet would be blown, because both the people and the tabernacle, in preparation for the Day of Atonement, they would have been ritually cleansed 
So all of the impurities would have been removed. All of their sins were atoned for on that day of atonement. And so what better day to proclaim a year of jubilee than when all the sin has been paid for and removed and the, the sins have been proclaimed on the scapegoat which is led out into the wilderness and brought a, far away from them. Now verse 10 here says that, that with this jubilee comes a proclamation of liberty. Liberty. This means that the people will be released from their debts. Now, we're not talking about car payments, right? Or cow payments or whatever, right? We're not, we're not talking about those kinds of things. We're talking about the debts here that we're talking about are, are, are debts that, that cause someone in desperation to sell their property or even, even under, under very desperate circumstances to put themselves into indentured servitude. Yet in the year of Jubilee, they would have this fresh start. They would return to their own allotment of land, surrounded by their own clan, surrounded by their own tribe, surrounded by their own family. But, but this means also that the land would, would be given that rest. Now, now, now think about this for a moment. We live in a, in a fairly agricultural area. That means that those workers who are involved in the agricultural trades, not just the, the, the large landowners, but also the, the hired help across the spectrum, from the skilled laborers to the, to the servants, all of them would be given a year of complete rest. Now, in this aspect, the jubilee year is essentially the same as the, as the Sabbath year that we looked at last week. But remember, as we, as we move to the second part of this, the year of Jubilee is a gracious gift of God. And at the same time, it's also part of His law. And like all law, there are legal requirements on the people, uh, the covenant people, that they are required, they're called to meet those requirements. So these are man's legal or moral responsibilities. And I just want to keep pointing this out. Um, it's, it's so fascinating, I think, that God includes this year of Jubilee in the law because it, it seems so overly gracious, doesn't it? It seems so overly gracious to God's people, especially, especially in light of the rest of the history of the nation of Israel. We know what happens when they get into the land, right? We know what happens in the book of Judges. We know what happens when they choose their own king. We know what happens when the kings uh, follow in the footsteps of their fathers and, and refuse to tear down the idols and turn their hearts away from God. We know what happens to the people of Israel. And yet God graciously gives them this. Um, there's no other God who does these types of things for that God's people. There's no other God who does these things for his people. But what do we know about God's character? We know that he is gracious and merciful and abounding in steadfast love. But remember, this, this is law. And so these promises that God has made, they come with these requirements. And as we work through these, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put them under four headings. Um, we're going to read each one separately, so hopefully it will make this whole chapter easier to follow and digest. Um, but the first heading is this. 
These are man's legal and moral responsibilities in business dealings. Okay, so in business dealings. Let me read verses 13 to 17. So Leviticus 25 verse 13 says, In this year of Jubilee, each of you shall return to his property. And if you make a sale to your neighbor or buy from your neighbor, you shall not wrong one another. You shall pay your neighbor according to the number of years after the Jubilee. And he shall sell you according to the number of years for crops. If the years are many, you shall increase the price. If the years are few, you shall reduce the price. For it is the number of crops that he is selling to you. You shall not wrong one another, but you shall fear your God, for I am the Lord your God. So, severe financial hardship for a variety of reasons could force the Israelites, or really even any of us, right, to sell our land, our property. Some of us even here have been in that situation where you have no choice but to, but to sell your house or to sell off some of the land in order to pay for some other debt. But the Israelites, they looked at this a little bit differently than we usually do. Um, I think this will be helpful for us to, to better understand what's going on here. So uh, basically, we should see this as more like they were able to sell leases for the use of their land. In fact, he even says this is for the crops, right? It's not really for the land. It's for the crops that will grow in the land. These leases could not last, according to the law here, beyond the, the year of Jubilee, beyond 50 years. So 50 years is actually the absolute max that they could lease out their land. And since all leases were to end uh, by or on the year of Jubilee, the prices were to be fairly calculated according to the number of years left for the harvesting of crops. And two times in these verses, the people are commanded to not wrong each other. Do not wrong one another. Um, do not take advantage of each other by, uh, by paying less than the land is valued or by charging more than it is valued. See, it would be easy for a, a wealthy buyer to take advantage of a, of a desperate seller, right? But notice, notice the command of verse 17. They are all called to fear God. There is a higher authority who cares for the poor and the desperate. In fact, he's already given this law. Back in chapter 19, verses 13 and 14, the Lord said this, You shall not oppress your neighbor or rob him. The wages of a hired worker shall not remain with you all night until the morning. You shall not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block before the blind, but you shall fear your God, I am the Lord. Now, now fast forward now to see how this applies to us as Christians. See, Christians of all people, Christians are those who are to, who, who are to fear God and to be morally responsible in our business dealings, right? Listen, we're all, we're all looking for a steal on something, <laughs> right? Which is an interesting way to phrase that. We're all looking to get a really good deal on a, on a house or a, or a car or a whatever it is. Um, but our priority is to fear God and to be very careful that we are not treating people unfairly for our own personal gain. And to help with that, the Lord tells um, 
both us and the Israelites here, that we are morally responsible to live in reliance upon Him. In reliance upon Him. Look at verses 18 and 19 now. Verse 18 says, Therefore, you shall do my statutes and keep my rules and perform them, and then you will dwell in the land securely. The land will yield its fruit, and you will eat your fill and dwell in it securely. The Lord has promised over and over again throughout Scripture to meet the needs of His people. The imagery in these verses, it very clearly is designed to remind the Israelites of, of, and us of, of Eden, right? Of the Garden of Eden. But even deeper than that, this is the imagery of God's people dwelling securely in God's garden, God's land, having all of their needs met by Him and walking in obedient fellowship with Him. And, and this has always been God's plan, right? That His people, He would meet their needs and they would walk in fellowship with Him. We go in the, in the storyline of the Bible. We go from Eden to the promised land to the new earth in eternity. Listen to Psalm 67. May God be gracious to us and bless us. Make his face shine upon us. Selah. That your way may be known on earth, your saving power among all nations. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy, for you judge the peoples with equity. You guide the nations upon the earth. Selah. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. The earth has yielded its increase. God, our God, shall bless us. God shall bless us. Let all the ends of the earth fear him. These are good blessings of God. But then this continues because the Lord anticipates their question and he, and he promises to meet their needs and then some. So pick it up in verse 20. And if you say, what shall we eat in the seventh year if we may not sow or gather in our crop? I will command my blessing upon you in the sixth year so that it will produce a crop sufficient for three years. And when you sow in the eighth year, you will be eating some of the old crop. You shall eat the old until the ninth year when its crop arrives. But again, this is law. So notice this sort of um, if-then language of these verses. Um, the Lord commands. He says, you shall, in verse 18. And then in verse 21, he says, I will. In other words, the Lord is calling for Israel's complete obedience here. Again, fast forward to us. See, Christ, Christ was completely obedient for us. And so we reap all of the benefits of a, think of it this way. One day, we're going to reap all of the benefits of a better Eden, right? Where no serpent, no dragon is going to come in. We, we're going to reap the benefits of a, of a better Eden. This is why Jesus says, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. But look back to Israel here, because beginning in verse 23, there's a, 
a subtle shift, or, or maybe we could say the Lord goes into greater detail um, beginning here, explaining how redemption and jubilee worked for those who were, who were forced either to, either to sell their property or even sell themselves on, uh, on account of their poverty. And, and this section really goes all the way through to verse 38, where we can see man's moral and legal responsibility in being good stewards. In being good stewards. Let's take this in small bites. Verses 23 and 24. The land shall not be sold in perpetuity, for the land is mine. For you are strangers and sojourners with me. And in all the country you possess, you shall allow a redemption of the land. These two verses here are of vital importance to understanding all of this. See, the Israelites, they are servants on the estate of their divine king who owns all of the land, and he is entrusting it to their care. It was ultimately not theirs to own. They are stewards who are to, to tend it and use it in a way that honored him. Remember, um, Psalm 24. Psalm 24 is asking the question that all of the book of Leviticus answers, I brought this up early in our study, but it's related to this discussion. L listen to these words. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. He will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob, Selah. So as I said earlier, the Lord is going to give a specific allotment to each tribe. Um, but the danger was that the more prosperous tribes could buy up all the land and, and push out the poor. And so the, the Lord sets up this kind of lease program. And he gives some specific situations. Look at verse 25. Uh, verse 25. If your brother becomes poor and sells part of his property, then his nearest redeemer shall come and redeem what his brother has sold. If a man has no one to redeem it, then, then uh, himself becomes prosperous and finds sufficient means to redeem it. Let him calculate the years since he sold it and pay back the balance to the man to whom he sold it and then return to his property. But if he does not have sufficient means to recover it, then what he sold shall remain in the hand of the buyer until the year of Jubilee. In the Jubilee, it shall be released and he shall return to his property. So if a man becomes poor, and, and this could be, any number of reasons. It actually doesn't say how. There's no qualifications here. It could be by oppression um, from an invading army. We see this happen in the book of Kings, uh, first, first Kings. It could be because of laziness. Proverbs speaks about that. It could be because of natural causes, maybe sickness or some other reason, a drought. Whatever the reason, poverty could force him to sell some or even all of their property. In that case, this law says here, there are three options. A kinsman redeemer, so a family member, could buy it back. That's the first option. The second, he might become prosperous again and buy it back himself. 
Or the third, if, if neither of those are options, then the Lord would redeem it for him at this year of Jubilee. So he sold it off to someone else, and either a family member can buy it back, he can become rich again or wealthy enough to be able to buy it back, or the Lord will give it back at the year of Jubilee. But there's an exception. Verse 29. If a man sells a dwelling house in a walled city, he may redeem it within a year of its sale. For a full year, he shall have the right of redemption. If it is not redeemed within a full year, then the house in the walled city shall belong in perpetuity to the buyer throughout his generations. It shall not be released in the year of the Jubilee. So walled cities, and, and what's important to this is they're not connected to the farmland. And so it was, it was to stay with the buyer forever. But then, then there's an exception to the exception. Verse 32. Uh, let me read verse 31. But the houses of the villages that have no wall around them shall be classified with the fields of the land. They shall be redeemed, and they shall be released in the Jubilee. So the walled cities, not the ones that are not and are connected to the land where they're growing crops and food, providing for themselves, those would go back to Jubilee. So verse 32, as for the cities of the Levites, the Levites may redeem at any time the houses and the cities they possess. And if one of the Levites exercises his right of redemption, then the house that was sold in a city they possess shall be released in the Jubilee. For the houses and the cities of the Levites are their possession among the people of Israel. But the fields of the pasture land belong to their cities. They may not be sold, for that is their possession forever. This is because of the, of the nature of the Levites' work as priests within the other tribes. They were not given a specific region of the promised land as their inheritance. Rather, they were to take places like this and live in them. So what, they're say, what this is saying here is that their inheritance cannot be taken from them. The the tribes need the priests. But this goes deeper than the land as well as it continues here. Verse 35. If your brother becomes poor and cannot maintain himself with you, you shall support him as though he were a stranger and a sojourner, and he shall live with you. Take no interest from him or profit, but fear your God that your brother may live beside you. You shall not lend him your money at interest, nor give him your food for profit. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt to give you the land of Canaan and to be your God. So this assumes that this person has sold everything and he has nothing left. And they were to care for one another as the Lord has cared for them, which is to say what? Gracious and merciful, right? They are to be gracious and merciful. Well, well this application for us it's actually no different, right? Those who are struggling and have given up everything and they have nothing. Consider 1 John chapter 4, verses 10 and 11. John says, In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. That, that's what they're called to do here. They're called to love one another as the Lord has loved them. But for the Israelites under the law, this moral responsibility is also their legal responsibility. And this con continues further in their treatment of the poor. In their treatment of the poor. 
the, the last resort for the Israelites in this debt, after they've sold their property, after they've been, they've been living with uh, their, their relatives, the, their neighbors, uh, they've, been, uh, they've been eating with them and treated as a part of their family, but they're still carrying a heavy debt. The last resort was to sell themselves into indentured servitude. And this was permissible only to two creditors, meaning they could only sell themselves to two different people. First, fellow Israelites. Listen to verses 39 to 46. Uh, let me read through 43. So 39 to 43. If your brother becomes poor beside you and sells, him, sells himself to you, you shall not make him serve as a slave. He shall be with you as a hired, hired worker and a sojourner. He shall receive with you, uh, he shall serve with you until the year of Jubilee. Then he shall go out from you he and his children with him and go back to his own clan and return to the possession of his fathers. For they are my servants whom I brought out of the land of Egypt. They shall not be sold as slaves. The Israelites were not to treat one another as slaves. After all, they had been redeemed from slavery. They, they were not to treat one another as the Egyptians had treated them. For that matter, they are not to treat one another even as their forefathers had treated their brother, right? The, the, the brothers had treated Joseph and sold him into slavery. They were not to treat each other that way. Instead, they were to treat their brothers who were in this situation as hired hands, and they were to be set free at the year of Jubilee or earlier if they'd earned enough money to pay off the debt. Now, this next section is incredibly controversial. Let's read it. Verse 44 to 46. I'll start in 43. You shall not rule over him ruthlessly, but shall fear your God. As for your male and female slaves whom you may have, you may buy male and female slaves from among the nations that are around you. You may also buy from among the strangers who sojourn with you and their clans that are with you who have been born in your land, and they may be your property. You may bequeath them to your sons after you to inherit as a possession forever. You may uh, make slaves of them, but over your brothers, the people of Israel, you shall not rule over one another ruthlessly. Now, we could spend a lot of time on this. Um, we're not going to because it says what it says. Um, but it's very important to remember that the law applies to the sojourners as well. So, which is to say, those who were there living in the land, they were, to be, they were to be treated as guests and even family members who could participate. Even those who we would, the scripture calls here slaves, they were to be, tre they were to be treated as um, animals. They were not still to be treated as the, as the Egyptians uh, treated uh, the Israelites and made their lives incredibly difficult. In fact, the, the law of um, uh, Leviticus chapter 16, the Day of Atonement, it specifically says that even those living as slaves among you may participate in these things. They were able to participate in uh, the, uh, the, the feasts and the festivals of the people of Israel. The idea is that they were converting to uh, Judaism converting to worshiping the one true God. And they were um, to be held with respect. 
And then finally, um, there's more we could say about that, but let's keep moving. They were also allowed to sell themselves. So not only, they were allowed to only sell themselves to fellow Israelites, but they could also sell themselves into indentured servitude to what we might call resident aliens or sojourners who were living among the people of Israel. So, So let me read 47 to 54. Um, Verse 47, if a stranger or sojourner with you becomes rich and your brother beside him becomes poor and sells himself to the stranger or sojourner with you or to a member of the stranger's clan, then after he is sold, he may be redeemed. One of his brothers may redeem him or uh, his uncle or his cousin may redeem him or a close friend from his clan may redeem him or if he goes rich, he may redeem himself. He uh, He shall calculate with his buyer from the year when he sold himself to him until the year of Jubilee, the price of his sale shall vary with the number of years. The time he was with his owner shall be rated as a, a time of a hired worker. If there are still many years left, he shall pay proportionately for his redemption some of his sale price. If there remain but a few years until the year of Jubilee, he shall calculate and pay for his redemption in the proportion of his years of service. He shall treat him as a hired worker year by year. He shall not rule ruthlessly over him in your sight. And if he is not redeemed by these means, then he and his children with him shall be released in the year of Jubilee. Again, this is pretty self-explanatory. These laws of Israel are, are applicable to all living within Israel's borders. This is, this is the law of the land. And the purpose of all of this is that they are to treat one another with respect because, because God has redeemed them from slavery. They are to fear God and not treat, even, those, even though it uses the word slave here. This isn't the slavery like we think of. They are part of the family. They're to be treated with respect. They can earn money. They can hold property. They can earn their freedom. And then verse 55. For it is to me that the people of Israel are servants. They are my servants whom I brought out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. When Christ arrived on on the scene, fast forward now to the New Testament. When Jesus arrives on the scene, He came preaching good news. What did he proclaim? We actually know. We have an account of one of his sermons. Luke chapter 4. Listen to verses 16 to 21. And he came to Nazareth, where he'd been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. And he unrolled the scroll and he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And, all, and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. See, for us, there is no year of jubilee. Our debts stand. There's not a 50 years and we can have everything wiped clean. 
We don't get to go into the promised land and stake a claim. In fact, we don't, we don't have any claim to the promised land at all. Unless you happen to be Jewish. We're still slaves to sin. We are without hope of being set free. That is, except for Christ. In Christ we have been set free. In Christ we have obtained an inheritance. In Christ we have been given the keys to the kingdom. In Christ we have the forgiveness of sin and life everlasting. And so when Jesus proclaimed those things in Luke chapter 4, it is the year of the Lord's favor. It is a jubilee. All those who have called upon the name of the Lord will be saved, have been set free, have had all of the debt of our sin paid for and taken away. And so, I would plead two things from you today. Two things. Fear God and trust Christ. Fear God and trust Christ. Pray with me. Father, we are sometimes overwhelmed when we read the law. We don't understand the Jewish mindset. We don't understand the ancient covenants. We don't understand sometimes, Lord. And yet we can see the command to fear God. We can see and we can hear the promises that Jesus has anointed, is anointed to proclaim good news to the poor, liberty to the captives, sight to the blind, liberty to those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Father, this scripture from Isaiah has been fulfilled in Christ, and so we pray that if there are any here who do not know him, or are still living under that debt, of sin, that they would repent and believe. Even as we heard Callie give her testimony of you freeing her from sin, giving her new life. Father, remind us of that phrase that cuts right to the heart of things, and such were some of you. but we have been set free by Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, as we come to the table today, we, we come rejoicing. We come rejoicing that Jesus went to the cross and paid the penalty for our sin, that his body was uh, nailed to the cross, that his blood was shed as a new covenant for us, a covenant of peace and grace. Father, we pray that your name would be, would be praised today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.